Since I've been pretty busy lately laying the groundwork for my next podcast series, I decided this week to post a rerun. It's an episode that I think is even more relevant now than it was when I recorded it back in February of 2021. I just listened to it again and really enjoyed it. It describes why there's so much confusion and argument over the term misinformation and why the term has been politicized and often used by one faction or the other to describe what we disagree with. And that's why it's so critical that experts explain why they think something is wrong, rather than just dismissing it out of hand. One thing that's changed since this was recorded is our understanding of waning immunity following vaccines. One of my experts debunks a rumor that immunity wanes within days, making vaccines useless. Well, that's still just as wrong now as it was then, but we do know that immunity wanes over a period of months. And unfortunately, the vaccines aren't as protective as people had hoped because we're using them to fight variants that we didn't even know existed back in February of 2021. Hello, and welcome to Follow the Science an investigation of science, medicine, medical misinformation, and how to tell the difference. I'm Faith Lamb, I'm your host, I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. In previous episodes, I've talked a lot about science and medicine, and today I'm bringing the focus to medical misinformation. Lots of people think they know medical misinformation when they see it, but how can we be sure something that's accepted now isn't going to turn out to be wrong on further investigation, or that some idea that looks like it's on the fringe might eventually turn out to be right? Science can't progress without sometimes getting things wrong and undergoing course corrections, and that's especially true now in this pandemic, since we're dealing with a brand new disease and trying to understand it on the fly. I've got two fascinating guests today. One is an immunology professor named Florian Kramer, who helped debunk a series of scary and kind of depressing claims over the last year about waning immunity, which is the idea that neither getting infected nor getting a vaccine would offer much, if any, protection against a future infection with SARS-CoV-2. We now know that's wrong, but was it really misinformation at the time? The claims started with papers that were published in top medical journals. But first, we're going to check in with Roger Schwelt. He's a doctor in California who's learned a lot about identifying medical misinformation over the last year. He's the creator of a series of educational medical videos called MedCram, and when the pandemic hit, his practice and his show changed a lot. He started treating COVID patients, and suddenly his brand of straightforward medical information became controversial and politicized in a way he'd never seen before. And he found that politics was determining what different factions deemed information and what they deemed misinformation. Can you just review your title and your area of specialty in medicine? Okay, so I'm a physician. I am a pulmonary and critical care and sleep specialist. Uh, I work at a private uh, medical group, but I also have an academic appointment as an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Loma Linda University and also associate professor of, of medicine at uh, University of California, Riverside School of Medicine. How have things changed with COVID? Has it been more challenging with the sort of, you know, fast moving pace of science with, uh, you know, yeah. reversals and with people clamoring for information, all these politics, all these other factors? Yeah, all of that has changed. We weren't that small prior to COVID. I think we had about 400,000 subscribers uh, about a year ago before this started. 
and uh, we would put out maybe a video once uh, every couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we weren't that concerned about fact checking because a lot of the stuff we were presenting was pretty well known. It was not controversial, congestive heart failure, acute renal failure, EKG interpretation, you know, none of this is going to hit the, hit the headlines. And then all of a sudden COVID hit. And well, initially we just thought, oh, we'll just cover COVID-19. And then, wow, things started to get controversial. And we had to really be sure that the science was solid before we started to talk about things and making sure that we were, you know, acknowledging both sides of the argument so people didn't feel like they were being excluded. And we can talk about all of the things about censorship on YouTube and things being taken down. His show was censored, he said, when he started talking about hydroxychloroquine, even though that was, at least initially, a perfectly legitimate experimental drug for COVID-19. But like a lot of experimental drugs, it turned out not to work. But it became extremely politicized because early on, Donald Trump had touted it. I happen to think, based on what I've read, I've read a lot about hydroxy, uh, I happen to think that it has an impact, especially at the early years. There were some very good tests. That, uh, and then somehow another experimental drug, an antiparasitic called ivermectin that was also being tested for COVID-19, became similarly politicized with one side embracing it as a sort of miracle cure and the other side demonizing it as quackery, when in fact, even now, it hasn't been thoroughly tested as a COVID-19 treatment. Have you been censored? Yeah, there was a couple of uh, videos there where we talked about hydroxychloroquine. D didn't really understand all of the issues. And so we would just talk about the science. And that's all we ever did was talk about the science. So we talk about hydroxychloroquine and what was the in vitro science? What was the, uh, what was the, the clinical trials that were going on? And then um, probably what came along was this, you know, very indiscriminate filter on YouTube that basically any video with ivermectin or, or hydroxychloroquine in it was basically dropped and, and taken down. So let's just say, I don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes, but when, when it was brought up, our videos were reinstated. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because I've been covering this from the beginning and I've talked to people who said, well, there's actually interesting in vitro science with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, they were both worth testing. It's not scientific to assume something doesn't work without testing it if it's if there's a plausible mechanism and something in a test tube that seems to work. So, you know, what what is going on there? Has that ever happened before that people just decide a certain drug is taboo to even talk about before the testing has been done or finished? No, I've never seen that before. That's something completely new. So on the one side are people who want to dismiss these drugs and just believe they don't work before they've been tested. And on the other side are another group of unrealistic people who think that these are miracle cures that are being suppressed. The reality is it's really unlikely there will be any miracle cures in this pandemic, but instead that we're going to see a slow, steady improvement in the way doctors treat the disease. I think that there's a lot of a lot of things that are, are deep and a lot of things that are motivating people. I believe that if they can find a medication that uh, works, then they don't have to take any other things or do anything else. And I think that's that's wrong as well, because there's no magic bullet. It's going to be multiple things that are going to bring it down. And it seems like, you know, one of the issues is that people want things to be very black or white. You know, either something works or it doesn't work. Whereas it seems like some of these drugs might work in some patients at some stages in some circumstances in that there's a lot of heterogeneity to this disease. Yeah, I think that you've hit on it exactly. So uh, there are things that are done in vitro, 
And then there are things that are done in vivo and explaining that to people uh, is, is big. Obviously, if something works in a test tube, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in a human being. The human being is far more complex, of course. But then even at that, there are different levels of studies. So observational studies may show, for instance, that vitamin D is associated with poor outcomes, uh, associated with worsening progression of COVID-19. But that's an association, and that doesn't necessarily mean causation. He says that whether he's enthusiastic or skeptical about a drug, that people tend to attribute nefarious financial motives, assuming that somehow there must be a profit in it for him. The public will look at that and say, well, they're just trying to downplay the science because they have nefarious reasons for doing this, either because they must have some, you know, stock in some company mm-hmm. or they, they think the stock is, yeah, they, they bring up all of these things that they immediately jump to these conclusions. But people have to realize that, that science is hierarchical and there are some studies that trump other studies. Yeah, and maybe we could talk a little about vitamin D because I think that might be a good case to look at. It's it's fascinating to see different connections between vitamin D levels and trying to interpret what what those connections between COVID severity and vitamin D might mean. Yeah, so before COVID, we knew based on a uh, you know a, a BMJ British Medical Journal study that was published by Adrian Martineau. Uh, back, I think in 2017, 2018, showed finally, after multiple years of looking at vitamin D, uh, after a very large meta-analysis that looked at 25 different randomized controlled trials, that supplementation with vitamin D did reduce the uh, incidence of acute chest infections. And that was a that was a big landmark publication. Not all the scientists have sort of been swayed by that, and, and that's because there's been years and years and years of false hope uh, in terms of vitamin D. So randomized controlled trials, which show that vitamin D was helpful, others didn't show it. And it may be because we didn't understand our populations very well. But nevertheless, with that kind of information going into a COVID-19 pandemic, there was always some thought that maybe vitamin D might be beneficial because it was beneficial in acute chest infections. He said there's good reason to think that vitamin D might help But most of the evidence so far is in the form of so-called observational studies, which aren't quite as informative as controlled experiments. Well, now enter in all of these observational studies that started to come out very early in in the pandemic, showing that, for instance, uh, SARS-CoV-2 positivity was associated with low vitamin D levels, that admission to the hospital uh, for COVID-19 was associated with low vitamin D levels. Now we're looking at something completely different. We're looking at immune systems and, and things of that nature. So that, you know, that's, an, that's another nuance there is how much vitamin D do you really need? So all of these uh, observational studies, you know, and, and they went on and on showing that mechanical ventilation is associated with a low vitamin D level. And so to somebody who's not, uh, you know, educated and understanding the difference between association retrospective studies and causation prospective studies, they may look at this and say, well, this is very, very clear. I mean, this this is so clear, we need to be on vitamin D because look at these low levels. So why aren't these observed associations conclusive? Well, the main reason is that they don't definitively determine cause and effect. It might be, for example, that having low vitamin D levels does cause people to have more severe symptoms from COVID-19. But it also might be that some other unknown factor is causing both the low vitamin D levels and the severe symptoms. 
well, then you need to sit them down and explain what associations mean. And, you know, there could be another factor, obviously, that's making the vitamin D levels low and also making the patient progress towards mechanical ventilation or progression of the disease. And so you can't really jump to that conclusion because they understand that you can only really establish causation with randomized controlled trials that are prospective in nature. But how do you describe that? I, I, tr I try to describe that to people who aren't in the scientific community by using an analogy of a cigarette lighter in a breast pocket. Okay. So I could say that, that if I were to do a study that people who get lung cancer tend to have cigarette lighters in their breast pocket. Is it the cigarette lighter in the breast pocket that's causing the lung cancer? You know, is it, is it penetrating through the skin and doing something in there? And we could show very clearly that cigarette lighters in the breast pocket are associated with lung cancer. There's no question. So what we should do is we should get rid of all cigarette lighters in the breast pocket. Well, that would do nothing to the incidence of lung cancer because it's, it's smoking, obviously, that, that's doing that and not the fact that the cigarette lighter is there. He says that more controlled experiments are in the works where vitamin D can be compared to a placebo but his critics have already made up their minds. So, you know, the vitamin D now, where, where are we now? We have, we have prospective randomized control trials, some of them not so randomized. And, um, and so now if you start to, to parse these, these articles or parse these, these studies, people believe that you're coming from it, not from a, let's look at the science and let's critique the science and peer review it, but they're looking at, oh, you must have some sort of nefarious reason because you must have stock in the, in, for instance, in the vaccine company, mm -hmm. and you don't want vitamin D to work because your stock is going to go down. And, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of, it's an uphill battle. Is there, is the problem partly that you need to take the vitamin D early before you're sick and that it takes a while for the vitamin D levels to, to uh, get uh, up to the right level in your body that you can't just start popping the vitamin D and expect instant results? That is true. I mean, that one of the things that Martineau found in his study back that he published a few years ago in the British Medical Journal was that it was the, it was the turtle as opposed <laughs> to the hare that won that. So it was a, a, a relatively small but regular daily or weekly supplementation with vitamin D that seemed to do the work. Uh, it wasn't these large boluses at the time of, of an illness. Uh, and that seems to indicate that it is this, uh, that there is a process, there is a timing that's involved. This brings me to this sort of bigger question about misinformation. And I wonder if, um, is it even productive to talk about scientific and medical ideas as either misinformation or not? Or is it better to just get into the nuance. I mean, is there even a way to identify misinformation and is it important to identify misinformation? I think it is important to identify misinformation, but unless you, in my experience, unless you explain why it's wrong or where, where it's gone off the tracks, people are going to just simply uh, take what you say and apply it and come up with their own nefarious reasons why you're bringing it. So I think it's, it's important to explain why something is wrong, as opposed to simply just uh, saying that it's wrong, eliminating it, uh, or censoring it, because that unfortunately raises <laughs> yeah. more questions in the population, like, why are you taking this off? Or why are you saying this? So it needs to be explained why it's wrong. Otherwise, it's, it takes a life of its own. We also talked about whether the tone and emphasis of the news can be a form of misinformation. People are getting a lot of news about rare side effects of vaccines, for example,
But then they're also being told that they'll have to continue to isolate themselves and social distance after they're vaccinated. Do you think that the vaccines in some ways have been uh, hampered by all of this sort of gloom and doom? Oh, once you're vaccinated, you still can't do anything. You still have to wear a mask. You still can't have to social distance. That that could be making people feel a little discouraged about the whole thing? It could, I, I believe. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that recently the CDC just came out and saying that if you've been exposed to somebody uh, with COVID-19, that you could skip quarantine if it's been less than 90 days since you've gotten your second shot of, of the vaccine. So that's a, a little bit of a plus. But I think, again, explaining that the vaccine is one of the major ways that we're going to get to a world where the prevalence of this disease is low enough where we don't have to wear masks and socially distance, hopefully at one point, um, you know, whether or not that's a reality or that's going to happen is always up for debate. But certainly uh, a world in which that happens is also going to include a lot of people getting vaccinated. Yes. And that actually brings me to, I thought you had a great video on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and that people have, I've seen a lot of negative comments. Oh, it's only 70%. It's no good. Why, why do we even have it? It must be money grubbing. You know, of course they go right to that paranoid thing. And yet you made a great case that that vaccine could help us get to normal much faster. And that, that, People shouldn't turn that down if that's the one that they're offered. Yeah, no, I look at these as tools in the tool shed. And uh, this is a great tool to have for a number of reasons. As you pointed out, it's a one-time shot. It gets, it gets us to uh, immunity much faster. And where it's losing its efficacy, it's, it's not like it's a, a black and white issue here uh, where everything is, comp is in comparison. I mean, if you look at the worst case scenarios of death or hospitalization, the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in South Africa, where 95% of those cases were of the variant, you've got a, a great tool there that prevented in 100% of cases, 49 days after the vaccine, 100% uh, of cases, there was no hospitalizations, there was no deaths. And that's great. I do wonder whether early on scientists, some scientists, maybe the ones who were most popular on Twitter, were... Um, not as transparent as they could have been about the level of uncertainty they were dealing with. So they would say, you know, this works, this doesn't work, you know, as opposed to this might work, this is worth trying, this probably works, but we need a little more data that they were um, maybe because it sells and the most popular people are the ones that just make definitive statements. There's always asterisks, there's always footnotes, there's always, you know, what ifs, and, and it's hard to sometimes communicate science in very small little bits, uh, sound bites, as we'd like to say. People want to have their science pithy. They want to have it wrapped up. They want to have sound bites. And that's the way the world works now is there's so much information that the information that, that you want to communicate has to be small and digestible. And unfortunately, it misses out on the nuances of the exceptions to that. Do you see sort of looking back on the year, it's been just about a year since, you know, a year, about a year ago today, we were sort of living our last kind of normal, you know, days of, of normal life. Do you see anything that either the medical community uh, or uh, scientific community uh, should have done better? So I think looking back over the last year in terms of communication is people were looking for a fix that would get rid of the, the, the magic bullet that would take out uh, COVID-19. And for many people, that was hydroxychloroquine. For other people, it was maybe vitamin D. And, and I think all of the scientists knew that 
if there was something that was going to work really well, like an antibiotic for a bacterial infection, it was never going to cure everybody of this disease. And I think um, we need to realize that maybe the population didn't understand that. So two opposing camps have now formed, one that's very skeptical of vitamin D and very enthusiastic about vaccines, and another that's very enthusiastic about vitamin D and skeptical of vaccines. And he says he's gotten attacked from both sides. So what we what we need to do is is say is say is be very upfront about it and say, look, we're we're coming at it from a non-biased, we're gonna go where the science goes and realize that you're gonna be pelted from both sides. You know, one day saying that uh, that you're 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 a shill for one side and a shill for the other. I, I think you'll notice on our channel, uh, we we talk about the the natural um, and more of a um, you know we talk about things like hydrotherapy. We talk about things like vitamin D, and, and there's a certain subsection of our population that love that because they don't want to have the vaccine. But then we also talk about the vaccine mm -hmm. as well. And, and you know, the science and what it says about the vaccine. And so oftentimes I will hear, I will see comments that said, well, you had me until you started talking about the vaccine, you know, your credibility mm -hmm. was good until you talked about the vaccine or, and then I'll hear things from the other side. It's like, yeah, great thing on the vaccine, but you're, I think you're a little bit off there when you're talking about these other, other things. And so people already have their preconceived notions. They, they obviously look at it, but I guess a, a good sign that you're doing the right thing in terms of science is if you get criticized from, from both sides of the political spectrum. So, you know, you're probably doing the right thing at that point. Okay. Well, I, I we have that in common then, you know, I, I feel like there are two opposing narratives out there and they're both wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the truth, lays somewhere in between. It's interesting because watching your videos, I felt like, like you and I have something in common that we've both sort of been considered in the middle in a very polarizing situation. And yeah. if, I'm wondering sort of what, what it is about people in the middle. And I thought maybe some of it is curiosity, that if you have curiosity, it can bring you back to the middle. You can say, well, wait a minute, let's just, you know, let's look at this vitamin D thing. What, what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the, one of the key things about it is, is open-mindedness and being able to look at things and, and realizing, I think there's this, there's this, uh, what's the best word to say? This characteristic of people who I think are, are learners is to say what, you know, no matter who this person is, no matter how, how their thoughts may be different, there's always something that you can learn from somebody by listening to what they have to say, because they've had a completely different experience than you. And if you can understand where they're coming from, it, it, it's at the very least, if you're never going to agree with them, you can at least understand their arguments so you can have better counter arguments at, at the very least, right? But maybe there's something there that you could learn from. My next guest is Florian Kramer. He's a professor of immunology at the Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And I want to talk to him about something we now know is wrong regarding the immune system. Last summer, there were these depressing reports in the mainstream press that we might not get immunity from past infections and possibly not from vaccines either. Well, that would have been pretty awful. And he says that was never a credible claim. So how did such a communication failure happen? He told me it comes down in part to the way people interpreted the figures in one particularly prominent scientific paper. A figure labeled 3E seems to show antibodies plummeting over just days. Bad news. But another figure, labeled 3F, shows them holding steady. Now, 
the communication was a little bit problematic there because uh, this was in figure, I think, 3E. Figure 3F showed the neutralization titers of the same individuals, which did not decline very much and which were actually not disappearing at all. And so if you compare figure 3E with figure 3F, you could come to the conclusion that what was shown in figure 3E was maybe a, an artifact of the assay that was used or because it was uh, using a different target, the nuclear protein. Well, what you see in figure 3F suggests stable neutralizing antibodies. That was what people were expecting. Stable neutralizing antibodies means people get pretty good protection from a past infection or a vaccine. So that's good news, but not surprising. Now, the question is how this is getting picked up, right? And uh, basically, one data set showed that everything is normal, and the other one showed that antibodies are getting lost, right? So if you don't understand the technical details of that, and you don't look at that in a critical way, um, you might believe what's there in figure 3E. So, you know, basically what they showed is that uh, these people make these antibodies that neutralize the virus, and they don't go away my interpretation, right? But uh, again, you need to kind of know what you're looking at. Do you think the researchers misinterpreted their own finding? Or do you think that journalists got a hold of it? Or a press release was misleading? I don't know. I mean, it's it's always uh, the case that and I, I, we see that now over and over that, uh, that negative uh, findings get amplified while positive findings are not getting amplified. The progress in, in terms of what vaccine development doesn't get as much uh, as much attention as then one uh, potential adverse event that uh, puts a trial on hold that might not be even related to the vaccination, right? For the antibodies, there were initially, there was a second paper in the Union Journal of Medicine that showed that there are some declining titers, which you, you would expect if you understand B-cell biology. Um, it had an unfortunate title, but it didn't show that the antibodies are going away. And then we got into that phase where there were actually a lot of reports um, from uh, from uh, Harvard, uh, from University of Toronto, uh, from many places uh, that actually showed that this seems to be a normal antibody response. Um, I, and there was not much media coverage of that. I think the problem in a way is also that we as scientists are not not used to uh, having reporters or even the, the, the public read our manuscripts, read our abstracts, or read our titles. And we are very overcautious about what we are saying. Um, usually, you know, uh, if, if something uh, declines a little bit, we warn that it might decline a little bit and that might have consequences, even though the, the biology behind it might be pretty normal. And I think that's kind of one of the, one of the issues too. I think we as a scientific community, we need to learn that right now in this crisis, when we publish, we don't communicate with our peers in our in our papers. We communicate with the public, and I think uh, that is also very important when we we uh, we look at these papers. Right, they are written for peers; they are not written for public consumption necessarily. Um, and so, again, if if the data is is presented in the media. It is important that somebody who kind of understands the data is translating what, what a scientific paper says 
uh, to the public message. That is so important. And it really, I think, taps into something I hope to discuss in this podcast on misinformation, which is that it's not just the rumors and the conspiracy theories, but also misinterpretation of legitimate scientific research can can often turn into something misleading. There's a lot of really good uh, health and, and, and science journalisms, journalism out there. Um, and, you know, but that also requires that you read a long article and that you look at the nuances. And there are journalists that, that, that really do this well. Um, I, I don't want to complain about that, but there's a difference between, uh, let's say, an article that you read in the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, of somebody who has talked to uh, 15 scientists to, to uh, figure out uh, how, how, this, how, how to interpret the data of the story versus, you know, just uh, a regular uh, news outlet that, that, that amplifies something that somebody said somewhere, right? I, I think that's, that's really important to distinguish between those two things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it gets at a big question that I... Uh, you know, I think is at the core of a lot of science journalism, which is that science is inherently, you're inherently uncertain, that there's always uncertainty and different points of view and disagreement among scientists and a lot of room for interpretation of findings. And therefore, I wonder, how can people think about misinformation in that context? And what is the best way to think about sort of what's good information, what's misinformation? You're mentioning something that's also important. We talk about probabilities and we use sentences that have a lot of mites in there and potentially and could be, right? And that's important because we don't know many things for certain, even if it looks like there is evidence for it, right? Still, there is uncertainty. And then the other thing is, and that's an inherent problem really, is as soon as you start to uh, to kind of make the message less complex, you lose information. And that's something that I'm struggling with for, for a long time now. You can write a paper that's very nuanced and you have findings that uh, allow a lot of interpretation. You discuss all of that. But um, the the question is always uh, how how can you how can you say the same thing in one sentence? And I think the the truth is you can't. As soon yeah. as you do yeah. that, you dump it down, and you you actually uh, lose information that was there, and that makes it in a way a wrong statement in the end. And I think that's also important. It's 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 tough. It's it's not always easy to uh, boil a scientific finding down to a simple message. So the science communication hasn't been ideal in this pandemic, and that's not a luxury. That's a matter of life or death. The problem is partly that politics is confusing the situation, and it's partly that in this social media environment and in the mainstream press that outrage sells better than information. And I think oversimplified statements can do a lot better, especially on Twitter, than accurate but more complex ones. But the reality is that science, especially now, is not that hard to understand or communicate. It just takes a few extra words and a little extra care to get things right. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam, with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. 
If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.